You're listening to Morrigan's Box. The creatures that I have seen mostly have been the, uh, the greys. Oh, what's in the box? In the garage, there was just this one skeletalized remain, and in the house itself. What's in the fucking box? So I was making my little post-workout smoothie creation. It's a, it's a protein powder, and you throw in a little bit of this green substance that's got all the greens you need for the day, your vegetables, things like that. And then it has some fiber, and I throw in a little bit of this little lipo pill thing. I don't know. It's just like all healthy garbage. It doesn't taste too terribly bad, but, you know, it's also not good. But... <laughs> Mom walked in there and asked me what I was having, and I told her what it was. She said, mmm. I said, oh, yeah. I definitely wouldn't rather have chips and dip and fried chicken or anything like that. This is much better. <laughs> and the lies we tell ourselves. Yes. It doesn't sound terrible, though. Did you have a good poop after that? Not yet. And I had some coffee, and now I'm having some tea. So any time now. You're going to shoot your brain out. Of this. I might take y'all with me and we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I will. I, it just, it's so, it takes so much. I don't have a very good um, track record. <laughs> track, like, in your body. I'm good at puns. I'm good at things. Anyhow, you know what might help is if I got me some CBD. So I'm ashamed to plug that in there. CBD seems to help move things out and around and it makes me feel better anyhow. So if you're into that and you need to feel good, maybe go poop, get you some CBD. We have a local sponsor, Urban Organics, here in Coopville, Tennessee. Go hit them up, grab you some smokes. And even if you're not needing help with your poops, it makes you relax. They got the good candies that taste so good. And nothing's better to get you ready for murder and mayhem than just chilling out, getting lax and not worrying about someone coming through the window or whatever might be happening. I'm not sure this dude's tactics. We've been going over the murders, but we haven't exactly developed a MO for the types yet. So maybe Kilo will indulge us more. We, we ended up last week finishing up on our part one of the Michigan murders because we have so much more to cover on this John Collins fellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> last week we did the, the first two, his first two murders. And this this week, we're going to finish those up. We're going to finish talking about his heinous crimes he committed throughout the years of 1968 through 69. So, yeah, yeah. noise. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good year. So we're even a better month. We're going to start today's show off talking about his third murder that took place on March 20th. Of well, just to touch back on the last two, was there any, um, I guess, similarities between the two murders as far as like developing developing an MO on what he likes to do or how he likes to do them? Basically, it was the whole young women in their late teens, early 20s. They were all college students that went to school there near him. And they were also, they had a particular hair color, I feel like that we'll touch on later when we're doing talking about the investigation, but his MO was really strangulation. But I, I mean, okay, okay. that was really his only signature was that, that it was strangulation. So, yeah. So we, last week, like we said, we talked about the first two and that was Mary and Joan. 
They were the first two to be murdered by John Collins. So on March 20th of 1969, a 23-year-old University of Mission Law student named Jane Mixer was reported missing after a note on a college bulletin board had said that she was going to hitchhike her way across Michigan to her hometown of Muskogon. So here we go again with the hitchhiking it up college students. I don't know why anyone thought that was a good idea to just get in the vehicle with complete strangers, but their mistakes well, we're just now running up to the 70s where a lot of the heavy, heavy serial killings started taking place. And before that, people weren't really that superstitious of things like that. And it wasn't really a thing either. It didn't, that wasn't something that got reported very often was issues with hitchhikers getting kidnapped or hurt or anything. It wasn't until a little bit later when <laughs> all of that came into play that it became more of a, one, it became more recurring too. People became paranoid of it. And now it's just unheard of. Like no one gets in your car. You're, you don't pick no one up. You don't get picked up by no one. Like that's, just don't do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason for her for her to be traveling was because she had recently been engaged and she was planning on moving to New York City at that time. So that was that was her intentions. So she had she and was found. Yeah. New York City is where it was at. Uh, her <laughs> fully clothed body was found. She had had her raincoat and a copy of the novel Catch-22 placed by her side. She was found the morning after she had been reported missing atop of a grave in the Denton Cemetery of Van, the Van Buren Township. Now, I, I didn't really look into it, but I was kind of curious. Maybe, you know, why are counties referred to as townships in Michigan? Like, I know in Louisiana, they're called parishes because it's their French ties. It's, it's kind of the same know? concept where like there's uh, parishes, townships, and then uh, like Rhode Island and Maine, stuff like that. They're called something else there too. Hmm. Providences or something like that. I'm not for sure. But yeah, it's just something I guess they're trying to be different. I'm not really sure the actual reasoning hmm. behind it. But yes, yeah, it's, it's just something along those lines of not wanting to be counties and cities. They wanted to be a township. Yeah. Jane was a little different from the others that had been found, the other bodies, because she had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber pistol, and then she had been garroted with a nylon stocking that wasn't hers. It didn't belong to her. So, so that's what the uh, little implication of the novel was. Catch 22, she caught that 22 caliber pistol bullet. I mean, I maybe I'm not yeah. entirely sure. I, 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 <laughs> I'm not, I don't know if that was a play on words they were doing or I'm just making connections where there aren't any. But I thought that was uh, that was interesting because I'm not really sure why they would have why he would leave that there or if it was hers to begin with. But catch 22, 22 caliber caught that mm -hmm. bullet. I mean, it could have been. So if you don't know what a garrot is, it's like a string or a rope. And in this case of her, it was a, a nylon stocking that had been twisted up and placed around the neck and then twisted with a stick or some some type of hard handle type thing to twist until the neck collapses, till the esophagus and all that collapses. So she had been shot and then the garrote had been placed on her neck. 
So that was a little different. I don't know if it was because of that was his signature and he wanted to keep that as his signature, even though he had already killed her with the gunshots to the head. So that's... Yeah, it's not like you're going to do by strangling of a corpse, so... Yeah. Unless, for some miraculous reason, she was still alive after being shot twice in the head. I'm not really sure. The station that brings you all the best in rock news. Hellfire Radio is your one-stop shop for all your horror and music needs. With the amazing talents of Scoops and Mischief, the Rant Commander, Azazel, She Headbangs, and dozens more, you can find whatever tickles your fancy. Get your freak on at hellfireradio.com or on the Live 365 app. Like a cold beer after a long day, the Asylum Productions have you covered in all things beer, music, and sports. Discover new breweries on Brews with a Crew, catch up on sports news on Inked and Chattered, and get your daily laugh and music news every weekday morning on the Asylum Morning Show. All on the Asylum.Productions and HellfireRadio.com. Well, I just like to point out that a quick Google search let me know that a township is a territory of a town. It's a subdivision of a county, while town is a settlement. So, like, a, it's smaller than a city, but larger than a village. So, so. like a community. Yeah, essentially. Okay. Yeah, Google. Right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Google's a good place to start when you have questions. All right. The pathologist that did the autopsy and the investigation on Jane's body found that she had not been sexually assaulted and that her death had occurred at approximately 3 a.m. on March 21st and that she had not been killed in the location of where her body was discovered. So the cemetery was a dump site, so she had been killed somewhere else. Mixer's murder. It didn't have those ties because of, like we said, the 22 caliber, two gunshot wounds to the head. But she had also not been sexually assaulted. She hadn't been beaten, stabbed, mutilated like the others had been. She had her, her stocking, her tights had been pulled down. And there was a sanitary napkin that did suggest there was an intention of sexual assault. It's not been mentioned yet, and it will be mentioned later on. But we talk about that there had been a sanitary napkin at the site of where she was found. All of his victims had been on their period at the time of their death. So that is noteworthy, worthy enough to mention now and again later. So the proximity of her abduction and the murder suggested a tentative link that her murderer was also the one of the first two victims. So it was really just where she had been taken from, where she had been found, and that sexual assault intent that what led investigators to keep thinking that she was a victim of the Michigan murderer. Four days after the discovery of Mixer's body, on the 25th of March, a surveyor discovered the body of a teenage girl in a remote air rural area of Earhart Road. And that's just about 200 yards from where Joan Shell had been found eight months before that. 
So the investigators called a called it was that was called to the crime scene. They noted that it was a very dramatic increase in the the savagery that had been exhibited onto the victim. The one investigator described the injuries of the victim as being the worst that he had seen in 30 years. So that was another thing. Like we, I know we talked about it earlier on that there wasn't a whole lot of, we didn't see a whole lot of those growth jumps in him, in John Collins until now. Now we're seeing that he's just being extremely brutal to the victim's bodies. I just want to go back to something you said earlier with what you've said, Mixer's murder. Take that, give it a little flip of Ruzi. Now you're having some fun though, because now it's murder mixer. That would be fun. (laughs) You just have a mixer with all the murders get together, have a good time. You know, see how that goes. But I wanted to point out another thing. You just talking about this other body being, you know, right up the road, essentially from the previous body. Now they determined those were the same killer, though, right? Right now, as of right now, the first three they say were all the same. Investigators say they were all the same murderer. Now, do keep in mind. This is also a couple of different jurisdictions as well. So it's not the same investigators on all three cases. But and then now you have this fourth one. I just found that that interesting that just saying that maybe, you know, we're we're under the impression that all these bodies uh, near each other on the same line of stretch of highway there are the same person doing them. That just uh, reminded me of a time there was a. Another serial killer who was killing literally on the same strip of highway as Kemper was. And whenever Kemper was arrested uh, and they had brought up the different bodies and things and asking who, who had done what, what have you. He was pretty open about what he did, who he done them to. But then they would bring up some other ones and he's like, no, that wasn't me. And he's and I can't remember for life of me now who the other serial killer was who was doing the murders on the same road. But I'm just wondering how nuts would that have been had they both dropped bodies off like that same week or something on the you know same, same side of the road and it's like or maybe not necessarily meet up but that'd been crazy too but oh hey i'm just dropping off my body oh yeah me too um bye those, kind of people have the same, those same little signature waves like jeep drivers you know they have that signature jeep wave or the motorcycle riders have that's <laughs> just just me here you know, and actually, I remember exactly who it was. It was Herbert Mullins, Big Herb. And oh was, yeah, he was killing at the same time as Kemper. And at one point in time, they were on the same same little highway. So like, that'd have been yeah. something else if, like, they would have crisscrossed in some way. Like, here's his body, here's his body. But they both had both had different styles too, so it'd have been super scary for them police people. To go, oh well, these are two dead people, same places, but definitely not the same person. Which that's what made that time in in the area anyway so scary is because they had just caught Dahmer, but then mm-hmm. you got all these other people coming out of the woodworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was a it was a real weird time back in those late sixties, early seventies when there was just crazy mayhem everywhere. And I I do want to in a future episode talk about all the different theories of why that time frame had so many serial killers Lynn. going on. That's the biggest one, lead. Yeah, yeah, but that we can, too. But we can definitely have a, a big old combo yeah. on it. 
A second autopsy revealed that this newest victim had received numerous fractures to over a third of her skull and one side of her face. All of them had been inflicted with a heavy, blunt object that was not found at the crime scene that could have been contributed to those injuries. They had been inflicted after the victim had been extensively beaten and tortured. Her killer had stuffed a piece of her own shirt into her trachea to muffle her screams so that she could receive extreme blunt force trauma to the face, head, and body without anyone hearing her. She had also been beaten with a leather strap. It had been inflicted so hard that it left several deep lacerations in her skin. There was welt marks on her chest and shoulders indicating that her killer had used restraints to hold her down while he whipped her torso and upper legs with a leather belt. Before tearing a branch branch off from a nearby tree and inserting that instrument eight inches into her vagina. Now, I told you when I was doing this research about (laughs) reading these things and trying to get this episode ready to, to do out. As my child was doing her virtual learning in the room adjacent to me, and I'm hearing from behind me in another room a chorus a cult you might say of children reciting the alphabet sounds and not the letters while i'm writing this it was a very traumatic experience for me so i feel well, i feel I that was you sending me the notes on just this particular section it wasn't quite worded exactly the same because you were just kind of shorthanded it it was more along the lines of you know choking her and smacking her with a leather i was like well that don't sound too bad and then, and then he put her tree branch up her vagina. I was like, well, that changes things. It sounded pretty fun <laughs> to begin with. And then he had to go and put sticks in there. So, no, no thanks. <laughs> and then and then I was like, well, you know, there were some deep lacerations. That was a pretty hard, pretty hard blow there. Blood splattering and disturbed soil at the crime scene would indicate that she had been beaten close to where her body had been discovered. And that she may have attempted to try to escape from her attacker while she was being beaten. The victim eventually was identified as a 16-year-old high school student named Marilyn Skelton. She had been reported as disappearing while she was hitchhiking in Ann Arbor. Okay, I have more than just one thing wrong with this. She was 16 years old. Why was she hitchhiking? Why were her parents letting her out there hitchhike? Probably didn't give a shit. My, you know what I was doing when I was 16? My parents didn't know where the hell I was. I never do it. Who knows you what? You was with me. <laughs> you yeah, were mostly we with me. What were we doing? There was one time what I remember walking from my mother's house to your mother's house. We didn't hitchhike because we, we were trying to be not fat little shits. But we could have hitchhiked if you wanted to. True. This is true. And we were in a pretty sketch place. But this was also the 2000s, so I don't, I don't think that was as prevalent as it would have been in the 70s and late I don't know, 60s. The side of the mountain in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, is not like Ann Arbor, Michigan. Just saying. <laughs> right. Just saying. Skelton was last seen alive outside of a drive-in restaurant in Washington Avenue two days before her body had been discovered. 
the autopsy would indicate that skeleton had died between 24 and 36 hours before her body had been discovered. Investigators, they connected the similarities between the murder of the previous killings to skeletons as well, including the fact that there was a garter belt that had been tied around Skelton's neck and her clothes and shoes had been neatly placed beside of her body. Like the others, they all had their things kind of laid out and in a, in a neat way beside them. However, there was a very dramatic increase in the savagery exhibited against this victim and the fact that Skelton was a known drug user and dealer at 16. She was one of those that they kind of thought she was, it was more of a drug deal gone wrong rather than the Michigan murderer. I am so tired of hearing about all these younger After- children who are much more successful than I am. I mean, already 16 years old, got a <laughs> successful drug deal going on. I'm like, when, what am I doing so with my successful life? Successful drug business. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm not tired of hearing about all these kids making all this money. I don't understand it, but I'm wondering Maybe we'll get more further into it when it gets to the investigation side and things like that about what kind of other mental illnesses or psychoses that he has. Because that to me, the, the organization and being neat, I'm not sure what that what that stems from. I know for me, like, I'm very I'm OCD and I like things being styled a certain way, put away a certain way. I wonder if maybe he had a touch of that or if it's something completely different that's related to the murders themselves as to why he does it. I'm not sure. Um, now, I do know that he was a very disorganized killer. Uh, he was a disorganized asocial killer because his attacks were so very frenzied. And because of the way that his time frame went, he, he didn't really have like a, he never stalked anybody out. He never really, well, let me rephrase that. He did know, and it was later found out, that he did have a connection in some slight form or fashion to all of the people that he murdered. But he didn't really plan anything out. And you, 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 Investigators were able to tell that he didn't really plan anything out. But after the murder of Skelton, police from the five now separate jurisdictions had the, where the murders had taken place kind of did a little sit-down chitty-chat to combine their resources in an effort to compare information, hoping that they could identify the perpetrator. And then, like I had said before, there had been informal exchanges between jurisdictions whenever one police department said, hey, I've got this case now. It sounds like the one that you had. Here's what I've got. What do you have for me? We'll try to catch this guy. Now they were wanting to sit down and have a formal sort of exchange of information to try to get some real answers. The agencies, all of the agencies had assigned 20 investigators each to work exclusively on these homicides. Now we kind of have now, you know, everybody's getting on board. We're all going to try to try to catch this guy. It's I mean, that might be a good time to get together and figure it out. Yeah, you know, we're four in. We might as well. There was little physical evidence beyond eyewitness descriptions and what few forensic reports there were. But the police were able to note that there were similarities in the physical characteristics of the victims. So this is what you were asking about earlier. What was his type? 
Stipe was brunette, Caucasians, each except for Mixer, had been reported or had been a recipient of extensive violence inflicted with a blunt force object or a bladed instrument prior to her murder. So they had either been stabbed or slashed or beaten. Each victim's body had been found within about 15 mile radius of Washtenaw County. And each victim, except for Mixer, had received a knife wound to the neck. So he had choked them, slashed their throat, or stabbed them in the throat, except for Mixer. Also, each victim had been found with an item of cloth tied around her neck, and each woman had been menstruating at the time of her death. These factors led police to be able to publicly give out a connection all three, at least three, of the murders were connected so far. So they were still kind of leaving Mixer as an outlier because of she had those little different, you know, the gunshot wound. Yeah, that's, that's got me so questioning at, if, uh, if it was him or why he, you know, deviated from his M.O. Yeah. And it, well, and then we'll soon see that it was actually the only time that he really drastically deviated and he did it consistently. So there's also a question, which we'll get into it later too. We were talking about in the last episode that the first, the first girl that went missing had been reported of getting in the vehicle with three boys picked her up as she was traveling. She was going to get on a bus and decided, no, she was going to take a ride from these three young men that stopped by to ask her if she wanted a ride. Well, and then we talked about that one of them was definitely John Collins, but who were the other two? So it was kind of like questioned and theorized that maybe he did have an accomplice and they were the ones that shot Mixer. And then that was why there was such a drastic deviation. That could be the truth. But there was because never they had to think that with these serial killers, not all of them, but some of them, especially the ones with larger numbers, they like to think that they do have accomplices whether they be voluntary or not, because sometimes you, you do it out of fear. But I know some people have thought that, you know, Gacy had an accomplice because of how many and how often and easily he was able to get his, that mm-hmm. there was never any, um, there wasn't any proof on it, but there was the the rumor on that, that that's how he was able to do what he did. And in this situation, it does make sense to maybe why it deviated. Right. And there's also the case of, we don't really know what happened was going on with his, quote unquote home life I guess you could say because there could have been things that happened that that changed that that made some stuff change with why he would have lashed out just like with the one that had been sodomized with the branch there could have been some kind of factor in his day-to-day life that made him go so go so hard with that particular case so I mean we really really never can tell until we get into the investigations and we hear what he has to say. At 6.30 a.m. on April 16th, the body of 13-year-old Don Louise Bossom was found discarded beside the of a desolate road in Ypsilanti. So our so age has now far. dropped drastically. She was only wearing a white blouse and a bra, which had been pushed up around her neck, and she had been repeatedly stabbed in the chest and genital region. There were also multiple slash wounds around her breast, butt, and stomach area. Then she was strangled to death with a two-foot length of electrical flex cord that was still knotted around her neck when her body was found. A handkerchief found stuffed in her mouth 
had likely been placed there to also muffle her cries as she was tortured. And her body was dumped in a way that it would have been easily found. So she wasn't really hidden. They, they wanted, her killer wanted her to be found. Although these injuries did suggest that there was sexual assault, there was not any sexual trauma when found during the autopsy. And we're still wanting to know if anyone out there knows, how can you tell if there is sexual assault post-mortem? Let us know. Send us an email, themorrigan.info at gmail.com, please. No, we need to know. I think it is hard to tell because you're not sure if they was willing sex and then, all right, now I'm going to murder you. Because like with, a, let's say I want to say, I want to say Kemper with the prostitutes there. A lot of them were up and willing, making their monies and then kills them afterwards. So maybe it wasn't yeah. him. I don't think he liked women at all. I can't remember for sure, but that was, that's kind of the point I'm going for. It's like, it wasn't necessarily rape. It was just murder after sex. So we'll have to. Yeah. If someone knows how to tell the difference, let us know. Let us know. I don't think Boston it matters. Maybe I don't I probably don't need to know, but now I'm curious. So My curiosity is going to take the better of me until I do know. Bossom had last been seen alive around 7.30 on the day before she had been found, and she was walking home from a friend's house, and that was only about a mile stretch between the friend's house and her own home. She had been accompanied with a friend for a few a few feet of the way, and his name was Earl Kidd. And he had informed the police that she and him had split up at an empty road five blocks from her home. So she turned and went down a different path along a set of railroad tracks. One eyewitness reported seeing the girl minutes, just minutes after they had split up at approximately 7.35 p.m., but where she went after that last sighting was never confirmed and verified. There was an orange mohair sweater that belonged to her found in a deserted farmhouse just about 100 yards from where the road was, where the road she'd been dumped on was. There was glass particles in the house in the basement that were similar to those that were found on the bottoms of Bassam's shoes. There was a full investigation of the farmhouse basement because of these findings. And they also discovered other pieces of her clothing, some electrical uh, flex cord that had been used to strangle the victim with, as well as fresh human blood that confirmed there was a murder had took place there. About a week later, there was a secondary search that was conducted and there were scraps of her blouse, the white blouse she was wearing, found and an earring that had belonged to Skelton. So there was little trinkets of the other victims also found there. The placement of these articles indicated that this killer had revisited the crime scene, as we had discussed before, whenever he had visited the funeral in the first episode. This also indicated that he was, again, a very disorganized asocial criminal and making it known that he was responsible for these murders. On the 13th of May, the farmhouse was destroyed by fire, and there were three clipped lilacs found laid in an even row across the driveway, and it was theorized that this symboled three victims that had been killed in that house. Again, we talked about it in the first episode that John Collins did fit the triad, and I don't remember what she was, I've always ever heard it as a, called as a triad, but Novella, what did you say it was called? The 
The McDonald Triangle? My, yeah, the McDonald Triangle. Um, yeah, that's like the very prominent figure for whenever you're de- uh, determining a serial killer attributes. Yeah, I've, I've only ever heard it called the triad, so... His well, that, arts- it would still be a, a triad. A triad would be something that's like uh, an ad to buy trees or something. <laughs> his arson, he, he was an arsonist, and but all of those fires that he set in those buildings that he burned were after he started murdering people instead of how it typically is in their youth. So there's that little bit of information. And this was one of those arson cases that we had discussed in the last episode. Finally, on June 9th, there were three teenage boys who discovered a body of a young woman in a field close to, yet again, another abandoned farmhouse on New Territorial Road. The victim had received multiple slashes and stab wounds to the body and a gunshot wound to the forehead before her neck had been cut through to the spine. She had been cut at such a force and so deeply that it had went all the way down through her trachea into her spine. The victim's right thumb had also received a gunshot wound, and this kind of indicated that she had raised her hand to protect her face from the killer as the gun was fired at a point-blank range. She had also been raped, but it wasn't really determined if the rape had occurred before or after her death. Her clothes were scattered all around her body, and there was also a missing shoe from the dump site. So now, in her case... Different from the others, her clothes weren't put in neat little places. They were all just kind of thrown around her. Like, it was very quick, a very quick, very messy dump. The victim was identified as 21-year-old, again, University of Michigan graduate student, Alice Elizabeth Colomb. She had disappeared shortly after midnight on the morning of June 8th. And she had last been seen walking home from Thompson Street after a party at a friend's house. There were bloodstains and buttons from her raincoat found at a commercial gravel pit in North in the Northfield Township on June 10th, which indicated that that was the location of her murder. Prior to the discovery of her body, investigators were convinced that Mixer was not linked to the Michigan murderer. So we did we did lock that in. Once the earring was found of skeletons, she was locked in as being one of the victims of the Michigan murderer. Now, because Alice had also sustained a gunshot wound to the head. They are now considering maybe Mixer was also from the same perpetrator. So there's yet again another University of Michigan student. So we have, so far, they've all went to college. They've all been college-aged, except for the two, the 13-year-old and the 16-year-old girls. So that, again, is another questioning, gives me questioning of why so young? Why did we deviate from our original plans, I guess, our original type age-wise? The final victim, and this would be the one that was actually gave investigators a really good idea of who they were who they were dealing with. Karen Sue Bineman was 18 years old, and she was also an Eastern Michigan Eastern Michigan University student. And she had last been seen on July 23rd of 1969. Her roommate, Sherry Green, had reported her missing after she had failed to return to her dorm after curfew. Now, we again, think back. We are talking about college kids here. So all through the spring and the summer of of 69, campus had made it mandatory curfews. So through this whole time, which 
maybe answers my question of why he went for the younger children during that time. Because everyone that was in college wearing in their curfews and he wasn't able to attack them as easily as he was these children that were living off off of camp that weren't living near campus. That's where I was going to think I was on the lines of just probably convenience, honestly. Yeah. Nothing, nothing genius, nothing maniacal, just straight up convenience. Yeah. Young women, they were just ganging up on buying mace and knives. They had security lock sales. They all went through the roof. Hitchhiking stopped completely. And the buddy system had started taking place. So women were going out in flocks of three or at least with a trusted male partner with them. Trusted male friend of of sorts, you could say. The curfews, as I said, had been implemented to just ensure that the young women on the campus were safe. Green had stated that Karen had last been seen shortly after noon on her way to a wig shop downtown. So this is the middle of the day, broad daylight. Three days after her disappearance, her body had been discovered face down in a wooded area beside of the Huron River Parkway. A medical examination revealed that she had received extensive blood force trauma to her face and body and that there were some lacerations being so severe that sections of her skin had been completely removed, exposing the muscle tissue. She had multiple skull and brain injuries, as well as being forced to ingest a corrosive substance. Her neck, shoulders, and breasts had also been burned with the same corrosive substance. So not only had she been beaten and lashed, she had also been forced to drink and been burned with battery acid, in a sense, I guess. I don't know. He's in ecology. He probably could have came across all kinds of corrosive acids. True. But even after all this, her cause of death was strangulation. Though the blunt force trauma had been so severe that if it was what was going to kill her, it would have been fatal. She had also been raped prior to her murder and that her underwear had been torn so forcibly that part of it was up inside of her. Those little pieces of underwear did reveal the presence of human semen and human hair clippings measuring less than three-eighths of an inch. These hair clippings were mostly blonde. So they did not belong to Karen herself because she was, as all the others, a brunette. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting somewhere. He's making some mistakes and also just doing this out in the broad daylight. You can kind of tell he's getting desperate, maybe reaching that berserker mode if we're not careful. Possibly. This was where she had been taken. I don't think she had been killed in broad daylight but she had been taken because it was known that the killer would like to return to his revisit his crime scenes police started to kind of catch on to that they ordered a news blackout now they had been trying to do these news blackouts for the previous murders as well but they were unsuccessful so now they were able to officially get a news blackout of the final murder and they were able to replace her body with a mannequin so they're trying to catch him, trying to get the get him caught reliving at the dump site. At approximately about 2 a.m. that next morning, there were undercover officers staged watching the area. And one of them observed a man that was running 
away from the area where the mannequin had been staged. But because of there was such heavy rain at the time, he wasn't able to see the man going to the area. And also, he wasn't able to successfully communicate via radio to his partner. Because back then, two-way radios just weren't what they are now. But because Karen had last been seen in a very well-populated area, investigators had been able to get a better idea of catching a witness of the abduction. The police questioned the owner of the wig shop that Karen had been to, and she said she did remember Karen coming in to visit. She remembered her purchasing a $20 headpiece in the early afternoon of July 23rd. She also recalled that there was a young man on a motorcycle just outside the shop windows. He also had side parted dark hair and was wearing a horizontal striped sweater. Karen had told the shop owner that she had made two foolish errors that day. Quote, purchasing a wig and accepting a ride from a stranger. She also said, I've got to be either the bravest or the dumbest girl alive because I just accepted a ride from this guy. The shop owner said she saw Karen get on the motorcycle before they drove away. When the police questioned the clerk of the store across the road from the wig shop, she stated that she also saw the man on the motorcycle and that the model of it was a Triumph motorcycle. I wonder what color wig she had purchased. I wonder if it was blonde. That's what I'm wondering. Like, what One, did she have real hair to begin with? or Was this like a reoccurring purchase thing that she did? Or was she going to get a wig to maybe use that as one of her defense mechanisms along with, you know, buy mace and all those other things that people are doing? Because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people did that with Ted Bundy. They went and they started buying different wigs or they started dyeing their hair different dying colors. Hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, good thought. Good thought. Well, I mean, how are you going to have a good thought like, let me go you know, spy myself up, dye my hair, get a new wig. But I'm also going to hop on a bike with a stranger. So. Well, I mean, I was talking about a good thought on you. And she, no, she had no good thoughts in her mind whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> good thought. Yeah, good. My part, good thought. Okay, I got you. Yeah, not, that wasn't a good thought. The I had one given I had by a book cover for Michigan Murders, and it was a, the cover of it was a motorcycle. And I was wondering why that was the case. So I'm guessing maybe this is where that plays in. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is. The description given by the wig shop clerk was passed around to all, you know, police officers. They did their briefing on who they need to be looking out for. And patrolman Larry Mathewson thought that the description matched one of his former fraternity brothers, John Norman Collins. Collins had already been interviewed because of, again, as we talked about, Joan Shell in the first episode. So he had been eliminated. And again, I remember I told you all to remember there was one little bit of information you needed to remember. He had been breezed off. He said he wasn't in town. Went to visit his parents or his mom. So they was like, okay, you weren't here. It's fine. Go on. We're not going to check up on that. Make sure there's a lead. Well, here we go. On the 25th of July, Matthewson interviewed Collins about his whereabouts on the day that Karen had went missing. He admitted that he had been driving his Triumph Bonneville in the area of the wig shop and around the college campus. And then he had stopped to visit an old girlfriend. Now, this former girlfriend was able to provide a recent photograph of Collins, which was taken to the wig shop owner and her assistant, and both confirmed that he was the man that that they saw Karen leave with that day. So, 
He made an oopsie and he slipped up and showed his face. Now you done fucked up. <laughs> so you Collins, are fucked up now. Because, again, the poli- the patrolman knew who Collins was. He was able to give the information that Collins had been known to be a thief on, at the fraternity house, which was why he had been kicked out. And because he had stole from his, his roommates, he'd also been known to have a very short temper and be aggressive and violent towards women. In one instance, he had raped a woman who had rejected his sexual advances. So now we're starting to hear, now that now this is all coming out, that he did have those little stepping stones, but they just weren't enough to get him seen by the police just yet. Also, several of his female acquaintances said that Collins would become enraged if he found out that the woman that he was with talk, or talking to was menstruating. So now my brain thinks... Maybe he killed all these women because he was trying to rape them, found out that they were having their period, and then killed them instead. Yeah, because it sounds like he has some kind of issue with women doing what women also have issues doing. We don't want to do it. Why are you killing me? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you killing me? I don't want to do this either. I am not excited for this. Yeah. So the police had also went and questioned his co-workers. At the time, the investigators learned that Collins had repeatedly taken delight in describing the graphic details of the injuries inflicted on the victims that were linked to this Michigan murderer to his female colleagues. He had also claimed that these details, the um, they were very precise. So they questioned how he knew those things. So he said that they were provided by his uncle who worked in the police force as a sergeant. So he had family members in the police force. He has been breezed over already once in the connection to the murder of Joan Shell. So now we're seeing that or hearing that he has been telling his female colleagues in precision and graphic detail all these injuries that had been inflicted to these women, these victims. The injuries Collins described were consistent with those inflicted upon the victims in which that they had not been close to the news or the media or anything like that. His uncle formally stated to the investigators that he also had not disclosed any of the information about the murders to his nephew. Said he hadn't talked to him, didn't know what he didn't know why he would mention him. Later on, investigators also would discover that Collins had either been acquainted to the victims or he had currently or previously lived very close to where they lived. Or he had likely established some kind of contact with them before he kidnapped them and murdered them. Especially in the case of Mary and Joan Shell, the investigators were able to establish that he had been neighbors to both of them. And that at the time of Mary's disappearance, Colin had worked in the office at Michigan University across the hallway from her office. So he was very, very close with her. He's seen her a lot. There was also an interview with one of Colin's recent ish girlfriends that said she lived in an apartment complex directly across the road from Don Bossom and that throughout their relationship Collins had regularly visited the girlfriend's apartment and had become acquainted with Don. So somehow he was able to do this and maintain his himself but not kill his girlfriend because he sounds like he's had a few of those but there's not the ones that came up dead. So at least he was at least aware enough of what he was doing and smart enough to be like, don't kill the ones that are close to me. Yep, don't get close to the ones you kill. Don't eat where you sleep. 
The wig shop owner was able to positively confirm that Collins was the one out of the police lineup. And seven other witnesses were also able to confirm that they had seen Collins in the area between the campus and the wig shop between the times of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. on July 23rd. On July 27th, the police arrived at his apartment that he shared with his roommate, Arnold Davis. Now, Collins refused to go to the police department for a polygraph test, just up and refused. And he just insisted that he was innocent. What I don't understand is why they didn't just take him. I I couldn't find that out. But the following evening, Davis observed that Collins was leaving the home with a box that was half covered with a blanket. When he asked him what was inside the box, he said it was just some stuff that he had to get rid of. Inside the box, Davis was able to, to make out a purple women's shoe, a piece of blue jean material, and a burlap purse. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, those are the three missing things from three of the victims. Now, his uncle, his uncle David, was also able to give information that during the time of Shell's murder, he had let Collins stay in his home to watch the home, to watch the animals while they were gone on a vacation. So he didn't leave completely. He wasn't in Detroit or wherever he said he was. He was still in Ann Arbor, in the Ann Arbor area. He was just not at his own home at the time. So I thought that was worth mentioning before we get to our third half of this third half. Look at me knowing what math is. Our third episode of the Michigan Murderer, where we will talk about the rest of the investigation, as well as the arrests and indictments and arraignments and all that good jazz, all the official court stuff. Anyway, that was a good talk. (laughs) Glad you all was able to join us. Good talk. Glad we got that out of the way. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you guys for being here. Please, if you like what you're do what we're doing here, if you enjoy listening to us ramble and rant and gossip and gab, go visit our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the asylum dot is it dot productions? Yep. The asylum dot productions. You go visit it. that. Set up a pledge. We already have some custom made pledges set up for you. So if you don't want to do one of those, if you think that we only deserve a dollar, go ahead and make that custom pledge. You get some cool swag, get you a little bit of something something. And get a chance at seeing some free behind the scenes content because we're going, we're going places, not the bank, but we're going places. I mean, we got to get to the bank if y'all want to give us plenty of money. We got to get that money dollars (laughs) so we can start doing more, more traveling, doing the shows. Hopefully things will be active event wise. We'll actually be in person coming 2021 if we can get to it. Uh, Actually coming up in February of 2021, the 20th, we're going to be in Knoxville for the oddities and curiosities uh, exhibition up there and we'll be doing interviews with some of the people who have their wares out for us so at least we do have that to look forward to and hopefully the crime cons next year will be in person and we'd like to make it out there and see these people talk with them meet you guys as well if y'all are going to be out there and about so and if you are local to tennessee come see us at the oddities and curiosities in knoxville we would love to see you exactly she took the words right out of my mouth i snatched them up you just snatched them up yeah, yeah i yeah. snatched them words out of your mouth like John Collins snatched these girls off the street. Oh, look at you. Woo. <laughs> so also, if you have some suggestions that you'd like to hear on the Morgan box, go ahead and send those to us. TheMorgan.info at gmail.com. Hit us up there. If you love us, leave us a review on Google. 
we're official on Google now. We have an official business. So go leave us a little review over there. Leave us a review here. Don't stress yourself out about it. Just leave us a review. Go visit all of our social media accounts because I have big news. The biggest news. We have Morgan Network merch. I finally got off my lazy ass and designed us some exclusive Morgan Network merch. And I'm going to be dropping those designs probably on Friday morning. So go follow us on the Twitter, on the Instagram. Check that out. You might get a chance at something free. I said the F word, free. It's my second favorite F word. But check that out. You never, you never know what you're going to get, what you're going to see, what you're going to catch. Hey, I'll leave, I'll leave that little spot blank hey. for you to fill. So anyway, again, thanks everyone for, for joining us today. Novella, do you have any last comments? Nope, nope. Um, I just look forward to finishing this out and seeing what all we discover on our last leg of this adventure and let everybody else know what's going on. But we'll look forward to that next Friday, 2 p.m. So thank you all for joining again, like we said, and we hopefully we'll see you next week. Hear from you next week. Yes. All right. Well, until next time, stay sexy, everybody, and don't get murdered. Bye. Bye. Hey, all you beautiful people. It's Kilo here from the Morgan Network. I hope you all are having a wonderful day today. So I just wanted to let you guys know that we are going to be taking a little break from the murder and chaos to enjoy the holidays with our families starting on Friday, December 18th. But fret not, we will return on January 5th with a shiny new episode of True Crime Tuesday and then again on the 7th with a whole new season of Morgan's Box. For the new season comes more wild and crazy topics to talk about and interesting interviews with surprise guests. But we can't do that alone. Oh no. We are here for you guys, so we want to hear from you guys. And that means we need you to send us your suggestions to themorrigan.info at gmail.com so that we can add your ideas to our list. Also, don't forget to check out the merch that we have available on our Instagram and our Twitter pages. Get yourself a cool Morgan Network shirt or a koozie, maybe even a sticker, something to brand yourself as a member of our Crow Murder. We love you all, and we cannot wait to see what's in store for this new season.